Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You need nothing from us. You lack for nothing. You are not waiting for a gift from us. You need no strategy from our hands, no help, no assistance. But your word tells us you are seeking worshipers, true worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. And know how much we want to be found among those true worshipers. So give us grace. And to that end, help us now to listen to your word with grateful hearts and to respond with truth and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 24. It's Exodus 24, I'll be reading the entire chapter Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This chapter 24 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. 
certainly one of the most important chapters in the Bible that we almost never think about. We know Genesis 1 is important. We understand that Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments is important. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. There, there are certain high points in these Old Testament passages. We understand these are critical, but if I were to have you list 10 key chapters in the Old Testament before I told you this morning that this was going to be important. Most of us would not have thought to put Exodus 24 on the list, but it ought to be because it gives us not only a glimpse of what God looks like, sort of, we don't actually see God, but even more so, it gives us a picture of what worship should look like. Now, before we get into that and talk about worship, let's try to understand what's going on here. The difficulty with chapter 24, as with some other chapters in Exodus, is it's hard to tell when Moses is going up and down the mountain. There's a lot of traffic back and forth, and the text doesn't always tell us, and then he went down, and now he's going up again, or sometime later, he's going back up. We don't have all of his movements recorded, and some of them are introduced two or three times. So it can be difficult to know what's going on. But what we have here basically are two different scenes. So first scene we find in verses 1 through 11. This is where the 74 go up the mountain. You see that in verse 1. So you have Moses. You have his brother Aaron. You have Aaron's sons who will later in the book of Leviticus be struck dead for their unauthorized worship. They should have known better. So Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, that's four, and then 70 of the elders of Israel. So the 74 go up the mountain. Verses one and two introduce us to this trek up the mountain. In fact, some people suggest that verse one, he said to Moses, could be translated, he had said to Moses, giving a kind of topic statement for this entire passage, sort of here's what this is about when God told Moses and 73 others to go up the mountain. Moses must have come down at the end of chapter 23 because there he was receiving instruction, so he must have come down, and now he is to go back up again, but this time he is to go up with Aaron, Aaron's two sons, and then 70 of the elders. That's introduced in verses 1 and 2. But then you notice before the action actually comes, we have some preparation and some instruction for the people at the foot of the mountain to give a sense for what this worship of this unapproachable God is all about. And so the action then finally comes in verses 9, 10, and 11. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of elders of Israel went up. You see that? Verses 1 and 2. Topic statement, they're going to go up, they commanded to go up, and then verses 3 through 8, some other instructions relative to worship, which we'll come back to, and then 9, 10, and 11, they actually go up. That, so that's the first scene, the 74 go up the mountain, verses 1 through 11. The second scene, in verses 12 through 18, we have now just two people going up the mountain. So it's confusing until we supply what is implied, namely 
that after verse 11, Moses has come back down the mountain, and now this is a separate occasion. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. It doesn't make sense unless he's gone back down the mountain, or Moses would say, I'm already here. You already told me to come up. He's come back down, and this is now a separate occasion. And so this time, he goes only with his assistant, Joshua, and no one else. So first 74, now just two of them. And you notice in verse 14, we know this is a different trip up the mountain because Moses understands that this is going to be a lengthy trip. And so he says to the elders, wait here until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. You see what Moses is doing? He's delegating his authority. He understands, this time I'm going to be up on the mountain for several weeks. And so in my absence, you have Aaron and you have her. And just as they laid out in Exodus uh, 18, that Moses was to receive all of the, the most difficult disputes, he's setting up some people in his absence so you go to Aaron and to her because he knows that this is going to be a longer trip. And so it is, we read, verse 18, Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain. This is after a seven-day wait. Verse 15, the cloud covered it for six days, and it wasn't until the seventh day that he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And then Moses comes near to this devouring fire, and we read at the end of the chapter that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights could, could have been literally 40, 24-hour days and nights, or it may be that this is an Old Testament way of saying he was there for a good long time. You might say he was there for a month of Sundays. It's, some, it, it's a euphemism that at the very least means he was there for a good long time, perhaps exactly 40 days in 40 nights. Well, what is he going to be doing in this second trip? Well, that's what we have in most of the rest of Exodus. So he's on the mountain to receive instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the service of the tabernacle. That's what he will receive in Exodus 25 through 31. He's on the mountain for 40 days receiving instructions about the tabernacle and the worship of God. And then in chapter 32, he's going to come down and he finds the people not in war, but they're dancing and they're singing and not of the good kind because they are engaged in revelry, in idolatry to the golden calf. And then the tabernacle is built with the instructions then repeated in Exodus 35 through 40. So that is sort of where we're going. It can feel like We've already been in Exodus for a while. Pastor Ross preached on Exodus, and now I've been in Exodus for the better part of a year. But there's still almost half of the book to go. We'll move at a little quicker pace as we get into some of these instructions regarding the tabernacle because you essentially get them twice. First, told to Moses what to do, then interrupted by the golden calf, and then Moses doing, and in some places, the exact same paragraphs and languages used to describe the building of the tabernacle, all of which is culminating to the very end of the book where there is another glory cloud, this time not on the mountain, but in the midst of the people in the tabernacle itself, that this God who has dwelt in literally unapproachable light on the mountain now by the end of the book will inhabit the tabernacle. That's where Exodus is going. But what I want us to focus on tonight 
is this first scene. The second scene leads us into the instructions for the rest of the book. But this first scene gives us a picture about worship. And it's fitting that chapter 24 would be about worship because the instructions in 25 and following are all about the construction of the tabernacle and the worship that will happen there. And chapter 24 gives us a picture. So I want us to think about worship and specifically, because this is what we have here, corporate worship. What are we fundamentally doing when we come together on Sunday for corporate worship. Narrow it even further. When we come here and gather at 1045 on Sunday morning in this very space, what is it that we are doing? How we answer that question will go a long ways towards shaping what worship ought to look like. It actually goes a long ways towards shaping what we might sing, what we might do together, what you might find in your bulletin, how, what the order might be. It may seem as if that, well, this, this order of worship was just handed down from the mountain sometime. Well, it, it, it wasn't. But if we're doing this well and thoughtfully, as Christ's covenant has and does and with Nathan will then it ought to reflect the ideas and the principles and the very example of corporate worship in the Scriptures. So what are we doing when we gather for worship? Let, let me just throw out a few models that you should know are not the right models. Let's start with the most obvious. Some churches might look at Sunday morning as entertainment. Hopefully we know that that's not what we're doing. If, if Sunday morning, if corporate worship, if the goal is entertainment, and few churches would state it so, so baldly, you know, enter here into this holy place that ye might be entertained. They, but they wouldn't say it that way. But some churches have that as their goal. And if that is their goal, it means that the worst sin that can happen on Sunday morning is you might be bored. Your kids might be bored. <gasps> you might go like an hour without your phone or something. If the goal is entertainment, then the audience is sovereign. Then the overriding principle is what, what do you like? What, what makes you feel happy? What makes you feel like it was meaningful? What is entertaining to you? The picture then of this place would be a, a theater. It's not a knock on a, on a theater for a play or a musical or, or a movie. But it's a, different, it's a different thing, isn't it? When you, when you go and you, you pay $1,500 to see a movie with your family for popcorn and, and soda, you, you expect to be entertained. You want to leave and feel like that was a good time. But hopefully we know better. That's not the aim on Sunday morning. Now, there's, there's truth in every one of these uh, false examples. So you think about entertainment. Yes, it's true. We want to do things here with excellence. And we are not setting out to leave you bored. And yes, we hope that people will leave having some sort of effect upon them. But the goal, you understand, is not entertainment. How about another, an, another 
example, another approach. Some churches might say, well, when we gather for corporate worship, it's fundamentally an opportunity for God's people to use their gifts. And again, there's truth here. It, it, it is an occasion for people to use gifts. People who are gifted in, in music, most notably. Hopefully people who are gifted in, in teaching or in other sorts of leadership. But hopefully we would understand fundamentally that's not what the aim is when we gather for worship. We are not thinking, first of all, about a talent show. So we are not thinking, first of all, how might we give people a chance to do something that they're good at. Well, there's all sorts of occasions, and we want people to use their gifts in a thousand different ways, but we will be disappointed if we think that corporate worship is the only sort of avenue where it really counts to use your gifts. So sometimes churches can slip into that mindset thinking what we're doing in corporate worship is giving people an opportunity to use their gifts and that can become a sort of trump card. I have gifts, I need to use my gifts. There's some truth there, but that's not fundamentally what we're about. How about another example? Well, maybe the goal is inspiration. So if the first metaphor might be a theater and the second one might be a, a talent show, maybe this one is sort of an art exhibit. To leave an impression upon you, a feeling of some sort of challenge or, or uplift. So the goal is that you would, you would leave corporate worship and having felt some sort of impression, some sense of having been inspired. Now, you can see how we're, we're, we're getting closer. Yes, we hope that there is an effect upon your affections. We, we think that's a good thing. We are all about emotions. We want you to feel things in corporate worship. Yes, inspiring can be good. If you said to me, that was an inspiring service. Pastor Nathan, thank you. That was inspiring. We would take that to be a good thing. And yet fundamentally, that's not what we're aiming for. We're, we're not, okay, we must put a service together that people will feel inspired. Let me give you one more example. Maybe then, corporate worship is fundamentally a teaching time. Ah, now maybe this is what Pastor Kevin, this is what he does, and he'll say that, yes, what we're here for is a teaching time. Well, there's certainly truth in it. We're getting close. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that edification is central to the act of corporate worship, that's why tongues needed to be translated, because it needed to be edifying. People needed to be built up. It needed to be communicable. And yet, we would not be the right metaphor to say that this time is fundamentally a classroom. It's not a theater. It's not a talent show. It's not an art exhibit. It's not even a classroom. If that is the goal, then what we think of on Sunday morning is, well, you got a sermon. That's what really counts. And then you got some bumper stuff at the beginning and at the end because you got to sort of round it out and, you know, people need a job and something to do. And so you got a little music you like to sing. But it's, it's a teaching time with some intro music and some closing music. That's not correct either. Our fundamental aim in corporate worship is not entertainment or an opportunity to use people's gifts or inspiration or even a teaching time, though there are elements of truth in all of those models. Fundamentally then, what are we doing? Let me suggest to you, and this is not original to me, but let me show it to you from this text, 
that fundamentally we are taking part in a covenant renewal ceremony. A covenant renewal ceremony. What's a covenant? A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement between two parties. A covenant is a commitment which establishes a relationship between people or groups of people. One author, actually this is John T. Rhodes, one of our, uh, our, our ministry workers serving in the UK. He was here during Missions Week. He says in his excellent book on the covenant, he says, a covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. In other words, it's a bond which joins two parties. It is a bond sealed in some kind of ritual blood. It is a bond unilaterally established by God with his people. Divine covenants do not allow for negotiations. God administers them sovereignly with his people. They are established with his people to be either kept or broken. When we think about covenants, then we're thinking about a contractual obligation. Think about the papers you have to sign, an endless mound of papers when you buy a house, or in particular to take out a loan, or to purchase a business. Think about the promises you make when you get married. That's a fundamentally a covenant. What is the act of physical intimacy in a marriage? It is a renewal. It is an establishing of the covenant. Why, why do you say, and now you may kiss the bride? Not just a bit of, well, <laughs> the goofy looking groom has been standing there for a long time waiting for this, so he's got to kiss the bride. We just do that so we can all sort of look in and way to go. But we do it because for that covenant bond to be ratified, it is ratified with the one flesh union of a husband and a wife. And that small kiss is to signify, a kiss that we are happy to see, to signify what we wouldn't want to see, the establishing of that one flesh union. It is that act of physical intimacy which ratifies the covenant. You probably haven't thought of this, you who are married, but when you engage in physical intimacy with your spouse, it is an act of renewal of those covenant vows with that oath you made before God and these witnesses and then this covenant renewal sort of ceremony. What we have in chapter 24 is a covenant confirmation ceremony in which we see the basic elements of subsequent covenant renewal ceremonies. And that's what we are doing when we gather for corporate worship. At least it's one important aspect of what we are doing. We are renewing the covenant that God has established with us. So, what did this covenant confirmation look like for Moses and the Israelites? We can think of these verses as a ceremony, or you might even call it a worship service. And it, the service focused on three elements the book of the covenant, the blood of the covenant, and the bread of the covenant. I didn't even have to make that up. That's just right there in the text. Isn't that good? Look at verse 7, the book of the covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. We already see in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. 
So it seems that they heard these instructions, that is, what followed the Ten Commandments in chapters 21, 22, and 23, that Moses came down the mountain and he said, get a load of this, here's what God was telling me on the mountain. And that's verse 3. And then verse 7, in a formal way, he reads to them the book of the covenant. And notice verse 4. This is massively important. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. I cannot emphasize how important it is that even at this early stage in the history of God's people, they were going to be a people guided by a written revelation. Not merely an oral tradition or prophetic guidance, but from this very beginning point, they were going to be bound together by something that was written down. It's one of the things that separates Christianity from many other religions in the world and from other cults and other false religions is that we have a fixed canon. We have a Bible. We have this written revelation. And though God still speaks through it, this revelation from God is fixed and it is closed. It is an objective standard. We do not subtract from it. We do not add to it. And if you know your Bibles, you know that this is covenant language, that in Deuteronomy it says in the giving of the covenant there that you're neither to subtract from it or add to it. And then that language comes again, do you know in your Bibles? In the very end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation. Because John seemed to have even some kind of sense that what he was writing was the close of some apostolic period of Revelation to say that this is now bookending this covenant document. You're not to add to it or subtract from it. In later history, there would be a priest to teach the people from the book. We think of the priest as just being a, a ritual man or a butcher, but he was a teacher. Second Chronicles 15.3, for a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. Or Nehemiah 8.8, 8, Ezra and the Levites read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Moses read from the book of the covenant that was central in this act of covenant confirmation. And then notice the people respond. Verse 3, end of the verse, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 7, end of the verse, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. When we end the service Sunday morning with a hymn, sometimes we might even do two hymns, we might do a prayer, but when we end it, it's not just a, well, we don't quite know how to end the service, um, stand up, stretch, sing a song, and let's go. Very thoughtfully and intentionally, it is meant to be a time for you to respond just as they responded to the hearing of God's word and says, yes, we will do it and we will obey. So we, in putting this service together, want to give you an opportunity to respond. I've sat under the teaching of God's word. I've heard the book of the covenant. And yes, I will listen and I will follow we are committed to the covenant and will obey. This is the heart of worship as covenant renewal. God's word is read and taught. So the stipulations are laid out. The promises, the blessings, the curses, the people hear it, they receive it, they understand it, and they respond. That's what takes place in covenant renewal. The book of the covenant. Here's the second element. 
the blood of the covenant. You see verse 8, Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. One author defines covenant in the Bible as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. We still use the language, cut a deal. If you make a deal, you're going to cut a deal. That goes back to this language of cutting a covenant. Because in cutting a covenant, we see in Genesis 15, for example, that it involved the, the literal cutting of animals. As those animals were, were strewn in half and put on either side, and the, the one making the covenant promise would walk through the animals to suggest, may I be torn limb from limb if I do not keep my end of the covenant obligations. Which is why it's so striking in Genesis 15 when Abraham has that vision that who is it going through the animal carcasses? But it is the smoking fire pot, a symbol of God himself, cloud and fire. God is the one walking through the animals, suggesting to his people, promising to his people, may I be torn limb from limb if I do not keep my end of this covenant. You cut a covenant. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And in this case, blood not only accompanies the administration of the covenant, it makes the provisions of the covenant possible. Look at verse 4. They build an altar. Verse 5, he sends young men to offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings. And then verse 6, he takes some of the blood, puts it in the basins, and the other half he, he throws against or he, he sprinkles against the altar. What does all of this blood signify? It signifies substitution. You notice in verse 4, the altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. This was representative of all the people that this atonement was being made on their behalf. This animal's life was shed for them, a substitutionary sacrifice. And it was a propitiatory sacrifice. You know that important theological word, propitiation? It, it's, it refers to the wrath of God being assuaged, turning away the wrath of God. Look at verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men. They should have died. There were warnings in Exodus 19 and 20, if you come into my presence, you will surely die. But here God has mercy upon them. His wrath is turned away. Propitiation, think of that first word, pro Propitiation is how God, who would have every right to be against us, is now for us, pro-us, because of atonement. It's a substitution, it's a propitiation, and it's a consecration. The people then are set apart at the end of verse 8. The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words is, is sprinkled upon the people as a kind of initiation into this covenant. When we have an infant baptism and we sprinkle the child, it, it, it is not because, well, it's a baby and we don't want to make the baby cry anymore and get the, the baby really wet. You know, in Greek Orthodox churches, they do immerse the baby and it's a, it's quite a scene. We, 
traditions that do that. It's not just, well, we don't want to get the nice white outfit wet and make mom scared. Sprinkling is not some concession to just a little bit of water. Sprinkling has rich biblical resonance. The blood was, was thrown against the altar, sprinkled on the altar. Here, at the initiation of this covenant, the people are, well, they're not immersed in it. They are sprinkled with it. It was a way of setting them apart, of initiating them into this new covenant community. Just as in the Presbyterian church, we believe that the child is sprinkled with the water to baptism to welcome him or her and set them apart as participants and partakers of this covenant. So we have the book of the covenant. We have this worship which centers upon the reading of God's word and the response to it. And we have this worship which is made possible by the blood of the covenant. And then finally we have the bread of the covenant. So they went up the mountain in verse 9, all 74 of them, and they saw God. They didn't really see him. They, they, it was a theophany. It was, it was a, a God appearing you don't see his face, but you saw under his feet a pavement of sapphire stone. And then, the end of verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. We may be curious about a lot of things. What, what food did they eat? Now, I, I said this was the bread of the covenant, presuming that bread, a staple part of their meal, was something that they ate. They ate bread and maybe something else. What did they drink? Was it water? Was it wine? Was it milk? Where did they get the food? Did they bring it? Was it provided miraculously? How long did the meal last? What happened when they were done? We don't know. But we know that they ate, likely bread, and they drank. A sign of fellowship. Often in the Old Testament, covenant ceremonies concluded with a meal. Genesis 26, 30. The feast that Isaac makes with the Philistines after a covenant was made with them. Or Genesis 31, 44 and 46, there's a covenant made between Jacob and Laban and it concludes with a meal. We know this. You, you give off your, your son or daughter and they get married and you have a meal. We celebrate. We're, we're, we're bringing together these two families. We're, we're going to eat something together. That's what people all throughout history and every culture have done to enjoy fellowship with one another. They eat and they drink. It's a sign of their closeness. It's a seal to their nearness with God. That God did not stretch forth his hand to kill them as they deserved. They saw God in a manner of speaking. They saw him. They saw pavement, really. And isn't that, isn't that striking? They saw God and they saw pavement, meaning when God appeared before them in this theophany, they were so overawed that the only thing that they walked away with, what was that like to see God? I can't tell you. I only know that I was looking at the pavement. I didn't, I, my head didn't get off the ground, but I can tell you that that pavement was sapphire and it was clear as heaven. That's what the sight of God will do. So what do we see in this covenant confirmation ceremony? If you think about it, it is not a stretch at all to see the very elements that we try to include in our corporate worship. Is there not a call to worship? Verse one, come up to the Lord. It's the Lord himself calling Moses 
and the elders to himself. The approach to God is made possible only by a bloody sacrifice. And then what do they do in this ceremony? They read from God's word. They respond to God's word. They gather around a meal of fellowship, of koinonia, of participation with God. And his presence is there. The heart of the covenant promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. Here's what one commentator says. So Exodus 24 is the story of a worship service, the first one fully described in the Bible. It contains nearly all the basic elements of a public worship and thus it sets the pattern for biblical worship. There was a call to worship, the reading of God's word, a confession of faith, and the sharing of a sacramental meal. Please do not think that we are just left to our own creativity to figure out what we want to do Sunday after Sunday. And don't think that this has just come down to us from some tradition that just developed in the Reformation somewhere. This has the richest, deepest biblical origins. And when churches jettison that sort of worship in an effort to be down to earth or more appealing or more entertaining, though those may have good intentions behind them, we lose more than just some tradition. We lose the very example of biblical worship given for us in the scriptures. That if we are worshiping as God has designed, there, there is always a gospel arc to the service, a gospel trajectory. God calls us to himself, and so we begin with praise, and we acknowledge his greatness, and we sing of his praise. And then as we, we encounter God and his majesty and praise him, we cannot help but understand our sinfulness. And so there's a period of covenant renewal where we confess our sins before God and we receive his assurance of pardon and then we move to hearing from God himself. It's not just the preacher giving a teaching, but it's God speaking through human instrumentation and then we respond in faith and obedience. It's the same sort of pattern we see with Isaiah in chapter six of his work. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple that's praise. And then what happens? He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so he confesses that sin and that uncleanness before God, and then God gives him a message, and he gives him a word that he must go, and then Isaiah responds and says, here I am, send me. Here's how Michael Horton puts it. It is in this context that we talk about the covenant renewal ceremony. Whenever we gather for public worship, it is because we have been summoned that is what church means. You know the Greek word, ekklesia, called out. It is not a voluntary society of those whose chief concern is to share or to build community, to enjoy fellowship, to have moral instruction for their children and so forth. Rather, it is a society of those who have been chosen, redeemed, called, justified, and are being sanctified until one day they will finally be glorified in heaven. We gather each Lord's Day not merely out of habit, social custom, or felt needs, but because God has chosen this weekly festival as a foretaste of the everlasting Sabbath day that will be enjoyed fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has called us out of the world and into his marvelous light. That is why we gather. 
I want you to turn as we close to Hebrews. Bernie's already read from Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You may be saying, wow, this is really interesting. And I see some of those things in Exodus 24, but why should we think that Exodus 24, why should we think that this, this idea of a covenant renewal ceremony is meant to be an example for us in corporate worship? Perhaps that's, that's what they did in, in the Old Testament. Why are we to think that this translates any way and should shape how we approach corporate worship? Well, Hebrews gives us every reason to think that it ought. If you know the argument of Hebrews, you know it is tracing this Old Testament worship and showing its greater fulfillment in Christ. And so chapter 8 is how Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. And chapter 9 is about redemption through the blood of Christ. And chapter 10 then is about that sacrifice, which doesn't have to be repeated like the sacrifices of old, but is now once for all. And then we come to Hebrews 10. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you ask what the therefore is there for. It's, it's pulling down the argument that the author has been making in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about the superiority of Christ, about this heavenly worship and its, its earthly replica. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now pause right there. Do you hear Resonances with Exodus 24, let us draw near. We have God summoning us to this mountain, this, this mountain that is the, the holy dwelling place of God. We will come back to the mountain at the end of chapter 12, this Mount Zion, even greater than Mount Sinai. He tells us to come up, to draw near with true heart, and we have the language of sprinkled. We're sprinkled clean. Our bodies are washed pure. How? By the sacrifice of his flesh and of his blood. We are told to come without wavering and with hope. And then verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, you see in your Bibles how day is given a capital D? That's, that's the, the translator's discretion, but it's wise in this case because the day is thinking of that day of Christ's appearing, that day when we will finally enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb, that heavenly day at Christ's return when the face shall become sight. So do you see the argument that's being made in verses 24 and 25? When we gather together and encourage one another and engage in this worship, it is in anticipation of that great day that is to come and in fulfillment of all of those covenant promises we see in the Old Testament. Which means Verse 25 is more than just a convenient verse that your pastors and elders can say, ah, ha, ha, you better show up at church. Don't neglect meeting together. 
Well, it, it is that, but don't think that's just a little thin argument. The argument is massive and deep. Why would you neglect this ceremony of covenant renewal? Why would you neglect to come to this holy mountain? Why would you neglect to come together that we might feast together even once a month upon the bread of the covenant and sit under the teaching of the book of the covenant and draw near to Christ through the blood of the covenant? How could this day not be the highlight of your week? Sunday ought not to be a day of collapse, but a day of climax. We have a better covenant, a better redeemer, a better sacrifice, a better book. We come to a better mountain. So, of course, we would not neglect meeting together. You know, there are some big churches that will say, how, how big is your church? Well, we have, uh, have 4,000 members. How many people are there on Sunday? A good 900. That should not be so. Likely, I don't think it's that way here, and we take very seriously who's on our membership roles. That's been very well handled in the last decade. But you, there should not be a, a big gap between who's a member of a church and how many people are coming on church. If anything, you should have more people coming because they haven't, they're, they're, they're non-Christians who haven't been converted yet, and there's new people who haven't gone into the membership process. If you're a member, and it's not your fixed habit to worship God with his people in church, your church, Sunday after Sunday, then you don't need your pastor or elder to sort of tisk tisk. You just need to really grapple with what Hebrews tells us what we're doing on Sunday. I know you go on vacation, we go on vacation. You worship somewhere else. I know there are shut-ins who are unable to come. People are sick. Sometimes there are college students who have their membership here and they're, they're away and they worship somewhere else. People may move and there may be a lag of a year before they train. I understand all those things. But brothers and sisters, there should not be a gap. I can tell you from the very bottom of my heart, I have no desire to pastor a church that has a great big fat membership number, a third of which never show up for worship. What is that? How could we not show up for worship? How can we not be interested in this covenant renewal ceremony week after week to come and to worship the living God and see the very pavement beneath his feet and feast together. Come, let us worship and bow down, the psalmist writes. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, and we are the worshipers at his feet, gathering week by week to renew and remember this covenant with our great God and King. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, you have made all of this possible. You have called us to worship. You have made a way to worship. You have given us a heart for worship. We pray that you sustain us in worship. We give thanks for the privilege that is ours to gather morning and evening and hear from the book of the covenant. And may our response be as it was in Moses' day, 
we hear and obey. We thank you, Lord. Let us love and sing and wonder. In Jesus we pray, amen.